Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, we'll be talking about New York Governor's and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's big plans for Penn Station. It's long been the less grand of the city's two big train stations. But first, Puerto Rico has defaulted on debt obligations for the second time in the island's history. The island's governor is asking for assistance from the federal government, and some members of the state's congressional delegation have been trying to help. But the problems get to deeper issues than just the economy. They go all the way back to Puerto Rico's complicated relationship with the U.S. You can join this conversation, 860-275-7266, Again, 860-275-7266, especially if you have connections to Puerto Rico. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up, we'll look at this complicated relationship from another perspective, that of people who come from the island to Hartford and bring with them a love for a brutal and outlawed sport. But first, Luis Figueroa is an associate professor of history at Trinity College. He's also a frequent panelist on The Nose, the cultural roundtable on the Colin McEnroe show heard on Fridays. Luis, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. So first of all, what does this default mean to Puerto Rico right now? Uh, <laughs> what it means is that it, it puts the the crisis in stark relief. Um, the government uh, shifted around some monies in order to avoid the full default, which would have been a billion dollars. Um, they still did not pay approximately $174 million. Um, this has now resulted in some lawsuits by uh, companies that are insurers of bonds, uh, bond sales in Wall Street. Um, and but but you know going forward, um, the situation <laughs> can be even worse because right now, um, even though the payments uh, that are coming up in the next few months are not as large, uh, in the summer there is a two billion dollar payment that is due, twice as much as was supposed to be paid now. Um, so so in a, in a way, it makes the, the case more stark for certain people because people hear the word default. Uh, it affects uh, mainly uh, big investors in Wall Street over the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. A lot of hedge funds bet on the Puerto Rican debt, and so they, they, they have heavily invested in it. But there are all kinds of funds. There are mutual funds, uh, retirement funds. Individual investors, um, a whole panoply of people who will be affected by this, um, and and the implications are broader. So at, at one point or another, I like to address certain aspects of it, and using the default case right now as as a as a stepping stone to to brief the audience on certain key aspects of the story that have developed, especially since uh, the fall. Well, maybe you can do that now for us and, and talk it through, because it seems as though this story about a default, even uh, regarding millions or billions of dollars, is just a, it's just a symptom. It's just a part of a much larger sickness uh, of the economy of the island. But maybe you can take us through a little bit of some of the, the ramifications and, and perhaps a little bit of the background here. Well, the, the governor of Puerto Rico began to um, rely heavily on um, borrowing, uh, 
to manage certain operations of the government, both of the regular services, what we would think here as the main government offices and so on, but also uh, in Puerto Rico, there are certain public corporations that are government-owned, but they operate somewhat independently. Um, the largest of these, which is a very important case for the, the debt situation, is the power utility, which was created as a government entity in the 1940s. Um, that corporation itself uh, represents about its debt, represents about, uh, depending on how you look at it, half, 40% or half of the total uh, estimate of $74 billion uh, that has been calculated uh, normally since the summer, although the numbers could be uh, bigger now. Um, the other similar corporations uh, that deal with water and sewer services or health care or uh, services to the municipalities and so on, there is a, it's a corporation that deals with financing the government. The government in Puerto Rico has a government-owned bank which handles uh, all the sales of securities, of bonds, and, and uh, there's a corporation that's separate that handles the finances related to the collection and distribution of certain sales taxes that go for the municipalities. So there are all these different entities that are public corporations that have been facing uh, debt problems, but overall other issues related to revenue, uh, to the corruption, in my view, of the administrations. Uh, the topic of corruption is something at one point I'd like to mention a little more about. So it, when you look historically, um, from around the 1970s, the government began to borrow more heavily. Uh, in the 1970s, in the context of the oil crisis, the world war crisis, the restructuring of uh, the world economy that began in the late 60s, early 70s, the Puerto Rican government faced serious problems um, in terms of the slowing down, a contraction of the substantial economic growth that it experienced from the 50s on to the late 60s, early 70s. And so at that time, the federal government uh, took certain steps uh, to provide some relief to Puerto Rico, um, providing, for example, food stamps or uh, money for students to go to college, etc., grants to municipalities much more than before. So the, what we call in Puerto Rico transfer funds from the federal government, either to individuals, uh, such as veteran benefits and social security benefits and so on, but especially to government agencies at the central level, what we would call in Puerto Rico the national government or the municipalities, it increased substantially in the 70s, and that helped mitigate the crisis. Um, but there were, there were you know, issues with repayment of debt and bonds and so on at that time. And there was a very important report by a uh, Harvard economist, uh, Tobin, that made recommendations for restructuring the economy in many certain ways, but a lot of it was not followed. And now what happened was that the Puerto Rican economy was able to rebound in large part because there was a federal provision in the federal tax code called, uh, at that time, Section 936, that allowed for American companies operating in Puerto Rico to uh, repatriate uh, to the United States uh, their profits generated by these factors in Puerto Rico, right? And so this was a, a version of the initial, the initial program of incentives that allowed industrialization of the 50s and 60s. But what it did is that it allowed for uh, a new phase of industrialization that was mainly high-tech in the pharmaceutical electronics industry. 
created a significant amount of employment. Um, and one of the interesting provisions was that the companies, the American companies, these factories, the money that they generated in Puerto Rico, they had to stay, keep it in Puerto Rico, park it in Puerto Rican banks uh, for a while, six months, nine months, a year, before they brought it to the United States. Now, this, to, to the audience, this might sound a little bit technical, but imagine this. All of a sudden, we have billions of dollars floating in the Puerto Rican economy, in the financial system locally, mm -hmm. for certain amounts of time. So the local banks expanded, mm -hmm. um, and they began to offer a great deal of credit uh, to the local population, um, far easier than before. And so there was a boom that was financed on the, on the one hand by the federal government transferring more money to the government of Puerto Rico or to individuals, on the other hand by these corporations who were creating these jobs, but also by this financial mechanism, right? So the, the period that goes from the late 70s and through the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, they were up and downs, but it was pretty much a, a certain stable situation and, and, and for uh, some people, you know, moving into the middle class or so on and so forth, consumerism, shopping malls, yeah. a certain degree of modernity. And then here's the problem is that in the 1990s, the government of Puerto Rico was in the hands of the party that wants to make Puerto Rico a state, right? And so this provision, this special provision for tax uh, exemptions for American companies in Puerto Rico uh, was seen as an impediment to achieve statehood mm -hmm. because it treated Puerto Rico different from the state. So one of the strategies of the pro-statehood government in the 90s was to go to Congress and convince Congress to eliminate this, right? Uh, because they wanted Puerto Rico to be on the road to becoming a state. Well, Congress, of course, we want revenues and so on, so they eliminated it, and it was phased out over time. By 2006, this is over, right? So as a result, from the late 90s, and especially the first few days, years of the 2000s, a lot of these companies began to leave Puerto Rico. A lot of these factories began to leave Puerto Rico, right? Mm. So I met here in Hartford because there are connections to us here locally. Uh, I went to a local hardware store uh, to buy certain things uh, in the summer, and the clerk there who attended to me uh, turned out to be Puerto I noticed the accent, and so I talked to him, and I said, so who, you know, who are you here? I said, well, the factory I work in closed yeah. when, they, when they eliminated this tax incentive. And so what Puerto Rico has had since the 2000s decade is the loss of at least 10% of the population. We're talking with Luis Figaro, who's an associate professor of history at Trinity College, and we're talking about the Puerto Rican debt crisis, but also the larger economic crisis. And you've been telling us uh, about the roots of this crisis, and it's it's a fascinating and it's, a, it's an unfortunate history. And, and in your answer, Luis, you talked about corruption. You talked about too much borrowing. You talked mm -hmm. about the problems that can come with government-run utilities and government-run banks, of course, out-migration. But so much of it stems from this one piece of the story, which is, for a time, the island was governed by people who wanted to make it a state. Yeah. There are also a number of people who would like to see it be an independent state, mm -hmm. a, an independent country. Yeah. And there are many people who would like to see it retain its commonwealth status with a different type of organization than the one it currently has with the United States. Yes. Is the root of the Puerto Rican problem right now our inability as a country, the United States, to decide what the hell to do with Puerto Rico? <laughs> yes, that's a very good question and, and a very good way to frame it, uh, John, because, um, first of all, so the people know, 
There was a time in the 1930s and most of the 40s when the largest political party in Puerto Rico wanted independence, right? Then after World War II, that party changed and decided to move in the direction of some kind of an autonomy, as they call it, self-government. And they are going to put the word negotiated within question marks, but somewhat they negotiated some kind of a rearrangement with the Truman administration that allowed Puerto Rico to have its own constitution, form of self-government, and so on. Um, in the process, through the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, the pro-statehood uh, movement grew while the pro-independence movement actually first stagnated and then declined. It had a little brief uh, uh, resurgence, but very small in the 60s and 70s. Um, the people who want independence in Puerto Rico, a lot of them don't vote to vote, so uh, the estimates are very difficult, but I would say like uh, maybe 8, 10% of the population really is uh, for independence ultimately, but the pro-statehood and the pro-commonwealth or pro-autonomy are pretty much even, right, since the 1970s. Um, and so there's this talk of war between these two parties, and um, they face significant challenges in relation to the United States government, regardless of the administration, regardless who is in power in Congress, right, is the reluctance of the American government, different administrations since then, in fact, since the late 50s, early 60s, to alter in any way, significant way, the relationship between the two countries, uh, which is, for all practical purposes, a form of colonialism, really. Um, and I could go into the details how I explain that <laughs> later, but, um, but the statehood people have run into the problem that people in Congress and in certain sectors of the establishment in Washington reject the idea of statehood. One of the reasons being that Puerto Rico is a country that is a Hispanic country where most of the people speak Spanish as a primary language, maybe 30, 40% speak English, but their primary language is Spanish. And also, historically, Puerto Ricans on the island and on the mainland have supported the Democratic Party. So if you are Republican, the incentive to make Puerto Rico a Hispanic state yeah. where the, the majority of the people support the Democratic Party, that's not that great. Well, but, of course, one of the interesting pieces of this is this out-migration that you've already talked about, something we've seen and we've talked about on our program before. It's been so large in the last few years because of the economic crisis yes. that states like Florida, which have long been hotbeds of Republican Party control, specifically in Latin American uh, communities like the Cuban community, now they're starting to turn more Democratic because more Puerto Ricans are moving to Central Florida because they can't live on the island anymore, and now it's changing American politics in Florida. Look, I, I, I always give you a personal example. Uh, on my uh, father's family, my paternal family, I have a lot of cousins and so on. My father had a lot of siblings. So there are about seven of my cousins, first cousins, who migrated to the Orlando region uh, since around 2001, right? And then they have their children, and now some of them have grandchildren. Um, right now, people don't know this, but the percentage of the population of Florida, represented by Cuban Americans, right, always the largest by far, is now about 30%. The 2014 number uh, for Puerto Ricans is 29%. Mm -hmm. Now, since 2014, a large migration continues. I mean, the government has estimated that maybe 75 to 100,000 people left the island last year. The majority of them, from my own experience, they are going to Central Florida, although there is now a distribution across other states. Um, so as a result, Florida now is shifting 
because, like I said, there's a number of Puerto Ricans who vote for the Republican Party, but the vast majority vote for the Democratic Party, right? Um, so, and they are not as conservatives as in other aspects as some of the either local Hispanic population in Florida or the general population in Florida as a whole, right? So there are implications um, that go beyond what's happening in the island. I, I have to ask you before we run low on time, uh, yes. what, what do you think the United States Congress or this Obama administration could do to help Puerto Rico? What could be done that is not being done? All right. So um, from the beginning of the crisis, when it really intensified at the beginning of last year uh, and through the summer, the Puerto Rican government uh, requested from the federal government um, that it al- passed legislation that would allow Puerto Rico uh, bankruptcy protection, like the bankruptcy protection available to municipalities, for example, Detroit in the United States, right? So uh, the, the Obama administration dragged its feet in doing almost anything regarding the Puerto Rican crisis. Uh, I was part of a, a meeting with Senators Blumenthal and Murphy in August where we pleaded for them and they submitted legislation and finally the Obama administration issued a report in the fall. But Congress is not moving. Now, what is interesting, though, <laughs> is that both the Obama administration and in Congress, they are saying, okay, we might take some measures. They're, they're dragging their feet, but we might take some measures. We might create a new special law that would allow territories to declare bankruptcy. But we will impose on Puerto Rico a financial oversight board that will rule Puerto Rico's finances for whatever number of years, right? And so the government in Puerto Rico has proposed a version of this, but controlled by the Puerto Rican government. Now in Puerto Rico, this has created a big political crisis because this sounds a lot like what the United States used to do in Central America, uh, in other parts of Latin America in the early 20th century, you know, taking over and ruling the countries and so on in a direct way. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a more colonial intervention than we've had since at least the 1950s. Um, and by the way, parallel to this, most people don't know, there is a case that was just argued in the Supreme, in the Court, Supreme Court, right? Uh, it's a very technical case that has to do with the concept of double jeopardy. There's a fellow who, had, who faced uh, gun charges from the, on the federal court level, and the government of Puerto Rico wants to charge him as well. So the case is in the Supreme Court, and part of the argument is you know, states can do this. So Puerto Rico argued that we have a certain degree of sh- shared sovereignty, so we should be able to do it. And surprisingly, the administration... Uh, in his briefs to the to the Supreme Court, said no. Puerto Rico has no degree whatsoever of sovereignty. Uh, it is just a territory that has no power whatsoever. And so what it does is basically undermine the foundations of the notion of self-government and commonwealth that have existed since the 1950s, even though a lot of us had criticized what existed before. But now it's so stark the way it evolved in the last, literally, since October. First, the Obama proposal of the oversight. In Congress, the Republicans won the oversight board. And now this case in the Supreme Court saying, no, you are a colonial territory. <laughs> so we just have a minute left, Louise. Yeah. And, and given, given that last bit of information and how the Obama administration uh, has grappled with Puerto Rico or not, really, and how the uh, Congress certainly doesn't seem willing to do much of anything. Are, are you hopeful that there is some sort of a, a good next outcome uh, for Puerto Rico at all? <laughs> no. Uh, the, the, only, the only good outcomes uh, in situations like this happens when, unfortunately, the crisis becomes more acute 
and people on the island, there might be some level of political mobilization, unrest, and so on. When there was unrest in the 30s, the federal government acted. When there was unrest in the late 60s, early 70s, the federal government uh, reacted. Um, so that's something that could happen. And, and I, I don't really, I don't see Puerto Rico having bottomed out not only the fiscal economic crisis, but the political crisis actually intensifying right now. And the other thing that could happen is only if Puerto Ricans on the mainland were to come together and organize and present themselves as a block, uh, especially given now a role in a swing state in Florida. Um, those are the only ways in which I could see this uh, improving. But personally, I don't see it improving substantially in at least two or three years, to be fairly honest with you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have you back again and maybe g- get an update because there's far too much to talk about. Uh, Luis Figueroa is Associate Professor of History at Trinity College. He's also a frequent panelist on the Colin McEnroe Show. Luis, good to see you, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming up next on the program, a local filmmaker makes his own connection to Puerto Rico through the underground world of cockfighting. That's coming up next where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We're less than a week away from our big Wheelhouse Uncensored 2.0 event. It's January 19th at the Tavern right in downtown New Haven. We'll be talking news and politics as usual, but it'll be a bit more freewheeling than usual, and you'll get some good food and drink as well. Go to our Facebook page to find out more. It's at Where We Live, and I really hope to see you there. Today, where we live, we're taking a look at the realities of Puerto Rican life, both on the island and in Connecticut. It's something Hartford-born filmmaker Pedro Bermudez explored in depth for his new short film, Hasta Mañana. On the surface, Hasta Mañana is about the very real, very illegal local underground cockfighting circuit. Dig a little deeper, though, and it's about something much bigger, the challenges and uncertainties facing Connecticut's Puerto Rican immigrant community. Earlier this week, Pedro stopped by our studios to talk more about the film, which premieres tonight at 7.30 at Real Artways in Hartford. Uh, Pedro Bermudez, thank you so much for coming into Where We Live. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. Good to see you, John. So first of all, uh, tell us why you wanted to tell this story in film. It was a story that had been with me for a long time. I was 18 years old. I was an undergraduate at the University of Hartford, a film student, and I was on vacation. Uh, I went to Yabucoa, Puerto Rico, where my family's from. So I find myself in a gallera where you know they, they organize the cockfights, and it's legal on the island. And I'm, I'm filming, and the gentleman there, they thought maybe I was taking photographs. I'm not sure. And I noticed that they were all posing with their birds, and I thought, oh, this is funny. It's like these birds are some sort of representation of who they think they are, who they want to be. And a man came up to me, and he says he's from Rochester, New York. He says, we love cockfighting so much that we fight them in Rochester in the dead of winter. So that got me thinking, well, if that's true of Rochester, that's got to be true of Hartford. But I didn't do anything really with the idea for some time. And coming back many years later, when I, uh, you know, when I came back to Hartford from Los Angeles, I said, well, I want to tell stories about my community. How can I do that? I know I want to tell this one. And it got the wheels in motion. When you started to look into uh, this in Hartford, what did you find? What did you find about cockfighting here in Hartford? It was full of contradictions. It was absolutely full of contradictions. I found people's excitement, especially in the Puerto Rican community and their familiarity. Well, everybody had an uncle or uh, a cousin or a brother who did it on the island. Um, I found this, this real acceptance, this cultural acceptance there. I also saw it for what it was. It's, it's a very brutal uh, activity, of course. 
And so those contradictions were what I sought to investigate because I couldn't make sense of it myself. It is very brutal. And as you say, it's illegal here, but it's, it's still legal in Puerto Rico. Why is that? I think it's so culturally rooted on the island that uh, it's, I think it'll just continue to be. And there's other places in the world, of course, where, where it's legal. I mean, it was legal in some of, of the American states, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, until recently. So this is something with a very long, long tradition. We don't have to look very far. If we look at Armsmere, there's a cockfighting ring in the, the cult family house. So I think it's, it's something that is so rooted in, in history um, that it, it just continues to proliferate, especially among communities that are disenfranchised. We have a, a short clip from the film. Uh, maybe you could just set this up for us because it's, it's in Spanish, but I, I'd like to play a little bit. Sure. So uh, ju just so folks have an idea, it's a very simple story that I wanted to tell. It's about a grandfather and his grandson. And the grandfather, you get the sense, has been struggling uh, for many years with some type of substance abuse and when his grandson comes from Puerto Rico to live with him, um, it all becomes too much to handle. Uh, one day, his grandson has his shoes stolen, and so he figures, well, I've got to get this kid some new shoes. Uh, dead of winter, Hartford, Connecticut. Um, how am I going to do that? He doesn't have a dime, but he does have a prized rooster. And so he, he figures, well, if I can sell this rooster, then I can, I can help this kid out. So the clip that we're going to hear takes place in Los Cubanitos Bakery on Park Street, where we filmed, and he, he visits a man there named Don Luis, the owner of the bakery in, in the film, and he says, look, I've got this incredible animal. Will you, will you buy him from me so that I can help my, my grandson? And that turns into a, a sort of a memory, uh, a, a trip down memory lane when Don Luis remembers who Victor is from many years back from the fights, and he insults him. And so that sort of launches the film in a new direction. In, in that scene that you describe, essentially the old man is, he's kind of insulted twice. He's insulted by Don Luis, the, the owner, uh, but he's also insulted by his grandson, who essentially speaks up and, and is wondering why, you know, they can't fight the, the rooster themselves. Right, right. And um, I, I think what, what's interesting about that scene is that as much as he wants to present a certain image to his grandson of, you know, I've, I've got it all together, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, I'm sacrificing for you. Everywhere he turns, that image that he wants to project is betrayed by his own history, by his own past, and he can't escape it. And so that really forms uh, the frustration of this character, of Victor. And, of course, it tells another important story, which is the 
the move that people make sometimes many times a year and sometimes very young uh, children like the one depicted here back and forth between the island and in a city like Hartford. This is this is a fact of daily life for many Puerto Ricans who live in Hartford. Absolutely. And, and that's something that's rooted in, in a very long history um, on the island of Puerto Rico, as we know, in the 1950s. There was Operation Bootstrap that was launched by the governor there, uh, Don uh, Luis Munoz Marin. And some people say, well, that was the best thing that happened to the island. It industrialized the island in an incredible way. And other people say, well, not so fast. That wasn't, that wasn't all that great. Uh, it forced a lot of folks to uh, leave the countryside. And uh, farming no longer was the, the main industry. They went to work in factories in the cities. But a lot of those jobs went to women. And so the men had to find employment here in the United States. So we, we see that those patterns of, of migration have uh, very long roots, and they continue to this day. The only problem with this, with this day today is that well, those factory jobs are gone. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Pedro Bermudez. He's a filmmaker, and uh, he has a, a new film that is premiering uh, at Real Artways tonight at 7.30. It's called Hasta Mañana, and it talks about... Uh, cockfighting, something that is is legal in Puerto Rico and and something that is illegal here in the United States. It's a beautiful uh, short film. Uh, This is where we live. Um, In this movie, you actually depict um, two roosters fighting, and I'm wondering how you went about doing that. We wanted to ensure that uh, two things, that we were truthful, faithful to to the the reality of, of these fights. We wanted to capture what those that violence is all about in a very authentic way. We also wanted to make sure that the safety of the animals uh, w- was paramount. And so we reached out very early on to the American Humane Society. And we also reached out to an incredible animal wrangler. Uh, we, we've seen his work in The Rum Diary with Johnny Depp. Uh, his name is Eric Colon. So Eric came up from Miami, and he brought the animals with him. And uh, it, it was pretty innovative, actually. He created a harness using his wife's bras and microfilament wire. And so Eric would be on one side of the room, and his son would be on the other side of the room. And when we, we were ready to film, they would be holding the animals back just enough so that they made contact. And we would intercut with uh, another a prop bird. Uh, it was a taxidermied bird. And through the magic of movie editing, uh, it looks quite realistic. The, the other thing that Eric was able to do with, with some of the animals is he actually trained these animals, some of the most aggressive in the world, to play dead, which was really incredible. So you can imagine uh, a bird lying perfectly still and another circling around him, and Eric was able to do that. It is remarkably lifelike, and it, and it feels um, very dangerous as you're watching it. It feels... Um, as though there really is quite some violence going on. Is, is your experience with this, with this sport, I suppose we, we, we call it a sport, um, is it one in which you say, my God, what, what violence? Or is there some part of you that says, this is, this is a part of, uh, of a cultural tradition that, that uh, you know, my, uh, people from Puerto Rico have been doing for quite some time. I, I feel some pride in it. Is there, something, is there something there for you? Well, what you bring up is, uh, well, it's, it's, it's absolutely brutal. Um, it, but it's it's complicated. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. Um, it is absolutely brutal, and at, at the same time, I do see where it where it comes from. I, I do see, at least, in the eyes of these men, I see the pride that they have 
um, with regard to, to their roosters and how they're able to train them. And so I, I see all of that. And I think in many ways, to answer your question, I, the film was allowed me to investigate my own conflicting emotions behind the sport because, as I mentioned before, I, I couldn't, and I, maybe I even still can't, make full sense of it. Well, why does it continue? Why does it have the significance that it does for these men? What I wanted to do, though, was to truthfully, honestly uh, portray as many different sides of that whole equation as possible and invite the audience to make their own assumptions. There are also some, uh, some beautiful scenes shot throughout Hartford, and they're in and out of bars and bodegas, and a number of characters have very small roles, women drinking and dancing and friends greeting each other. Who are the people in this movie? We had one professional actor, and that's our lead, Victor, who was played by Anthony Ruiz, a New York City-based actor, a veteran actor. He was, he was incredible. He was wonderful to work with. Everybody else was a, a, a Hartford resident, a non-professional. And that's one of the amazing things about making a film like this along Park Street in Hartford is the moment you tell folks that you're going to make a film, everybody wants to join in. I remember our casting session. We had over 100 people show up. And the first person, I'll never forget, the first person that showed up was uh, Jorge, who plays Bonito. He showed up with his whole family. He was so excited to, to share his ex experiences with us. And he, he made it in the film. Um, were there any, any people who were concerned because they were involved in cockfighting in Hartford who said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this, Pedro, but I, this is getting a little too, too close for comfort? I found both sides of that. I found folks that um, were very proud and wanted to share all of their experiences. And I found other folks uh, who weren't so, so uh, available. Uh, they were pretty hesitant. And, and that was interesting in and of itself. Um, the character we heard from earlier, Don Luis, uh, the older gentleman uh, who the grandfather tries to sell the bird to originally, at one point, uh, he says he's not really in the game anymore. He says something to the effect of it's soiled. The, the game is soiled now. What did he mean? Well, it, it was something that I, I heard in the Gallera in Puerto Rico. And um, it, it struck me. It was interesting talking to these, to, to these older men who were there, and, and, and they were uh, setting up fights with, with other men. Um, they would say, well, this is a gentleman's sport. Mm. You know, this is a, this is a game for gentlemen. But they would also add, but it's not like it used to be. And I think what they saw was the threat of new, new folks coming into the game. Uh, again, if we want to call it a game. Um, and they were somewhat, maybe they were a little suspicious of, of the younger generation coming in. Because you have to remember that, well, on the island it might be different. But at least in the United States, if, if you're doing this, you're doing it illegally. And uh, you're doing it, placing yourself in, in a great deal of legal danger and, and all sorts of danger uh, beyond what's going on with, with these animals, of course. Um, I just have two other questions for you. And one has to do with um, the city of Hartford itself as a backdrop for a film. You, you mentioned that you, you first thought of this when you heard about um, cockfighting happening in, in Rochester. Um, and Rochester is a place I wouldn't necessarily think that, that this would be going on. And I think for many people nationwide, as they may see this film, they would say, I didn't know that Hartford was a place where, where this might happen. I, I'm wondering, 
your thoughts about telling a story about a Hartford that that really does have these many, many layers, that is such an important part of the Puerto Rican community, that has all these layers beneath just what we would see if we walk, even if we walk down Park Street in the middle of of a big Puerto Rican neighborhood in Hartford. That's that was one of the interesting things for me doing this film is that there's no there's no real marker that says you're you're in Hartford. Now, of course, when a Hartford audience sees it. it of course, it's, it's singularly a Hartford story. But I wanted to remove anything that says, well, this takes place only in this city. As I said, a gentleman comes up to me, he says, I'm from Rochester, and we do it there. So if that's true of Hartford and that's true of Rochester, well, then we've got to figure that's true of many other places. And I wanted to, to tap into that sense of um, this underground culture uh, among Puerto Ricans and all throughout the United States, if, in fact, they are in disenfranchised communities, if they are living in some inner city, well, probably this might be something that they are culturally connected to. For some, of course, for a small population. But the point is, it exists. Mm. Why hasta mañana? Because I thought it was hopeful. I got that from, uh, there's this great Ismael Rivera song, and... Um, they might not have anything, but they, they'll have tomorrow. And at the end of the film, I, was, I wanted to express that for these folks who, who don't have any money, uh, they, they may not even know how they're going to eat tomorrow, but they'll have each other. So that's why. Pedro, thank you very much for sharing the film with us, and congratulations uh, on, your, on your premiere. Thank you so much, John. Asta Manana was commissioned by Real Artways with support from the Edward C. and Ann T. Roberts Foundation. The film premieres tonight at 7.30 at Real Artways in Hartford. For more information, go to our website, wnpr.org. When we come back, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has some big changes planned for Penn Station in New York City. We'll find out what they entail and how they affect Connecticut. It's the first installment of our new Zoned series featuring WNPR blogger Heather Brandon. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. If you've got thoughts on a new Penn Station, comment on our website, wnpr.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, what happens when you change no means no to yes means yes? Connecticut joins a handful of states that are pushing for new laws in an effort to combat the epidemic of sexual violence on college campuses. But do affirmative consent laws go far enough? It's part of our conversation tomorrow here on Where We Live. I hope you can join us. Tonight, the Mark Twain House in Hartford will host a free panel discussion in connection with Hartford Stage's production of Body of an American. British Middle East expert Emma Skye, who's been a guest here on Where We Live, will join Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Finkel, author of The Good Soldiers and Body of an American. Um, They'll talk about the aftermath of U.S. entanglements from Somalia to Iraq and the consequences that can reverberate abroad and at home. This discussion begins at 7 o'clock. It's moderated by WNPR's own Lucy Nalpathanchel, and I hope that you can make it. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has some big changes planned for Penn Station in New York City. WNPR's Heather Brandon wrote about this on her blog, Zoned, where she tackles issues related to transportation and land use. She joins us now along with WNYC senior editor Matthew Sherman for the first installment of our new Zoned series here on Where We Live. Heather and Matthew, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks. 
Hi, John. How you doing? Good, good. And I'll start with you, Heather. You highlighted some stuff on your blog about Cuomo's plans, and you think it really isn't interesting here in Connecticut. Why is that? Well, I think one of the things that that might interest Connecticut and all of New England, actually, is that Cuomo wants to connect Metro North to Penn Station. He's proposed building four new Metro North stations in the Bronx. And what I believe is really the first time that Metro North can go directly to Penn Station. So Penn Station is not really like the most beautiful gateway to the city, and Cuomo has acknowledged that. He wants to try to fix that. It's kind of like a dark, you know, rat's maze of a place. But um, but it also is like a really significant hub for transportation because that's where you can get Amtrak. That's where you can get, you know, bus lines. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to save a buck and you need to catch a megabus, you can stand on a corner outside Penn Station. And Long Island Railroad works out of there. So um, this connection for, for Metro North really simplifies a lot of things. And it means people can take a bus from somewhere else in New England to a Metro North station in Connecticut and kind of, you know, easily get to a lot of other places in the country. We call that multimodal transportation. Well, so Matt, tell us about some of these high-level changes. Heather mentioned some of them, I mean, new train stations in the Bronx and, and connections to Metro North. Give us a rundown of what uh, the governor's talking about here. Right. Well, basically, the, the new line or the new connection uh, is pretty clever. It's actually been around, uh, the idea's been around for about 15 years or so. Uh, and it would uh, tap the Metro North New Haven line into Amtrak's line, which goes actually from the Bronx into Queens and then from Queens into Manhattan, uh, unlike the New Haven line now, which goes directly from the Bronx uh, down Manhattan, down Park Avenue. Uh, so that's would only require about three miles worth of new track uh, and then add those stations so you could pick up some extra passengers in the Bronx. Uh, but the other thing that he's working on, and the one, the part of it that's really gotten a lot of attention down here, is to redevelop Penn Station itself. You know, it once was this grand Beaux-Arts landmark, uh, was torn down in the early 60s, and basically uh, subverted below Madison Square Garden. And so he's put out a couple of different options that would uh, essentially try to bring more sunlight down into the tracks, reconfigure a lot of the concourses down there, and make it a more pleasant uh, community experience. Uh, here's the governor uh, talking about Penn Station in his State of the State address just yesterday. The mass transportation access point in New York City is Penn Station. Penn Station is grossly over capacity and underperforming. Penn, in a word, is miserable. Amtrak owns it. It is un-New York. It is unwelcoming, and it is unacceptable. If Vice President Biden was critical of LaGuardia Airport, we're only lucky he didn't t- take a train and land and at Penn. <laughs> so, Matt, that's the governor talking about it. As much as any of these plans may improve. Um, access or it may improve ways for us in Connecticut to get into the city. What he seems to be talking about is just how ugly the building is. Is that really at the root of it? Uh, Well, it's definitely one piece of it. Uh, You know, people have been complaining about uh, Penn Station ever since uh, the original one was torn down. It's hard to navigate. It's dark. uh, It's miserable. It's crowded. All those things that he talked about. And uh, you may know that there has been a different plan, a similar plan on the drawing board for about 20 years. Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan came up with this idea of converting the post office across the street from Penn Station, uh, which is similar in many ways to the original Penn. 
built in the 1910s. And since the same tracks run underneath Penn as run underneath this post office, you basically just need to build staircases down from the post office to those platforms that are already there. Um, that is, however, a pretty large undertaking. They have begun construction on part of that already. It's supposed to open uh, later this year. Um, and this idea, though, of uh, opening up, redeveloping Penn Station itself um, has been around also for a while. There was the developers who first won the contract to redo the post office had this um, amazing elaborate swap in which they wanted to move the basketball arena over to the post office and then get access to a whole new city block and really do it right. Giant plan, I think about $15 billion in total. Uh, that collapsed. And so one of the options that the governor is throwing out there now is are, are some more modest ideas, such as instead of moving the arena itself, which is giant, move a theater underneath the arena, which is though underneath the arena is still actually above the train station. And then it's you'd almost be able to, um, you know, get some light and air in underneath the arena and down to the down to the train station part of it. And WNYC has a really cool uh, Penn Station timeline that you can find on our Twitter feed at Where We Live. Matt, one of the things Cuomo has proposed is this idea of a rail tunnel under the Hudson, and uh, he's also suggested a new track for LIRR. Can you talk a little bit about why he's, he wants to do that, what problem he's looking to solve there? The tracks under the Hudson are heavily used, actually, by New Jersey Transit. Um, maybe about 100,000 commuters a day uh, go under through these t just two rail tunnels. And it's shared with Amtrak, and especially since Sandy, they have been complaining that uh, there are more and more electrical problems, more and more delays. But it was al always at capacity, and New Jersey Transit has the worst delays of uh, any of the commuter railroads in the region. Uh, so they really need another tunnel. And uh, there was uh, a project underway to build another tunnel, and then Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey uh, killed it uh, a few years ago. And since then, um, Amtrak uh, has tried to revive that idea, the, the Federal Transportation Department. And Governor Cuomo has now embraced it as his own plan. But I have to say, at first, he said, it's not my tunnel. And he didn't want to put any New York money into this project. He's now relented some and now, along with New Jersey, says that uh, they will, the states will pay for half of it. And, um, and and the feds hopefully will pay for the other half. Well, we, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, while you're talking about paying for things, and we just have a few minutes left, Matt, the big question is where's the money coming from for all of this stuff? We're talking about in Connecticut a huge transportation plan that our governor, Dan Malloy, wants to undergo. It includes rail and rebuilding roadways and bridges and that sort of thing. But we're you know sort of coming up blank on where all the money's going to come from. What's the answer in New York? So the Metro North part of it will be paid for by combination of Metro North and, and the state of New York. Uh, some of it may come from the feds. I'm not quite sure uh, how much of it. The Penn Station redevelopment, which might cost as much as $3 billion, uh, that's supposed to come from these developers that would be able to sell retail space. 
down in this new Penn Station. And there's a big question as to whether or not that's really economically viable, whether there's enough money in retail to pay for $3 billion of a train station. Uh, I should say there is a little bit of state money in there, too, uh, and federal money, but very little. And so much of this is really dependent on the idea that all these changes will help to increase ridership. You've got to get more people on the rails if you're actually going to get enough people to pay for all this and make it worthwhile. Yeah, well, um, the way things are going now, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, really, the it's almost like there are too many people riding and not enough space for them. So <laughs> in many ways, we're just going to be catching up uh, to, to the capacity that we really need. Uh, Matthew Sherman is a senior editor at WNYC. Again, you can find a really cool Penn Station timeline at WNYC, and also we're tweeting it out at where we live. Thanks thanks so much, Matthew. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. And so, Heather, if they go to zonect.org, uh, what can people find? Because I know this, this is something you've been covering. There's a few pictures of uh, the renderings. It's really just proposals, just ideas uh, for what Penn Station might look like, and then plenty of links for more information. What do you think that the impact is going to be for Connecticut commuters? If some of these plans get get done, do you think that we really will be able to to connect in a little bit better way? Because so many people make their livelihood going into New York City, and of course, it's the center for entertainment. Do you think that this is a big thing for our region? I do. I think it's a big deal. Uh, we've got to make sure that we're we're operating really well on this end of it, too. So that's the challenge is, like, can we match what New York is going to be able to provide? Uh, Heather Brandon is WNPR's digital editor. She's also the host of Zoned. It's a blog about land use and transportation. You can find out more at zonedct.org. Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives. If you want to find out more about our event that's coming up next week in New Haven, just go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.